Verse 12. Well, then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. Okay, wait a minute. This can't be Jesus. That doesn't make sense. I mean, I understand all the stuff, Rick, that you've just told us about the angel of the Lord and, and all this, you know, whatever. But, but now this angel of the Lord is, is asking God, how long is it going to be? Understand what's going on here. First of all, if it bothers you that Jesus, if this is Jesus, is praying to God, He did that through His whole ministry. Get used to it. Jesus the Son praying to God the Father at the same time. Though they are one and the same, they are also unique. And it blows my mind too. It should. He's God. (laughs) It should always blow our minds. But the fact that He's praying, note what He's doing here. The angel of the Lord is interceding on behalf of His people Israel. He's praying to the Lord on behalf of His own people. Does Jesus do that? Isaiah 53 verse 12 Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. It's what Jesus does. It's part of his his role, even right now. A primary role of Christ is intercessory prayer. And those of you who are intercessors, guess what? You're just acting like Jesus. You're just doing what He does. Romans 8.27 He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8.34 Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And that's all the angel of the Lord here is doing. He is interceding on behalf of the people. Get this, when we sing, and we sang this earlier tonight, um, how long? How long is it going to be, O Lord? That is not, in the Bible, that is not a statement lacking faith. It's a statement longing for God to, to move, longing for God's action, longing for Jesus' coming. When we sing how long, we're not saying, how long are you going to beep? Come on! No, we're singing, I am yearning to see you. I am, I'm aching. To be with you. How, how long is it going to be? It's like my kids asking me, how long is it going to be when I say we're going to go to Disneyland you know, in six months? We're not, but if we were. <laughs> how long is it going to be, Dad? It's not how long. So we've got to shift our, our thinking on that because in Scripture, the how long question is a, a yearning, a longing. The angel of the Lord is longing for compassion for Judah and Jerusalem. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus to me. And I love this. It says that the Lord responds to him (laughs) with gracious words, comforting words. Speaking with gracious words, comforting words. See, this is the heart of God. And again, you know, as we've gone through these scriptures, we see over and over and over God expressing his love, his grace, his compassion. Well, I didn't know that was in the Hebrew Scriptures. Read them. All you got to do is read them and you see that it is. This is what the whole Old Testament is about. The love of God expressed to a people who rebelled against Him and didn't want it. And He kept saying, come back to me. I love you. I'll do anything for you. And they keep rebelling. 
And so like a loving parent, he, he disciplines. But then he still brings them back and says, return to me and I will return to you. And they still go through all this rebellion. So finally he says, you know what, I'll just show up because I'm tired of them taking the stripes. I'm going to take the stripes on myself. The love of God. And he's the one who speaks with gracious words, comforting words. Gracious words is the Hebrew tob, and it just means good. He's just giving good words here. Comforting is nichumim, and it means compassionate. That is the substance of Isaiah the prophet, of Micah the prophet, and of Zechariah the prophet. These are the three most messianic of all the prophets. These are the three that are most about Jesus. And they are also the three who are bringing comfort and compassion and consolation to Israel. You remember when we studied Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. The entire, from chapter 40 all the way through chapter 66. Remember what that's called? It's called the book of consolation or the book of comfort. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, beginning the book of comfort. Isaiah speaks comfort. Micah speaks comfort. And now Zechariah, throughout the book, these eight visions and all the messages following are about comfort, compassion, goodness to Israel. And that's what the angel of the Lord is praying for. This is so cool. You've got Jesus interceding, and now you have God responding with gracious, compassionate words. And watch this, verse 14. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim! Stop right there. Proclaim. Why is Zechariah privy to this vision? Why is he seeing it? So that he will tell it. So that he will speak it. So that he will evangelize with it. Son, interceding to the Father for goodness, for compassion, for mercy. Father speaking these good words. And the angel says now to Zechariah, you tell people this is what happens. This is how it works. This is how it goes on. Answer me this. What is not good about the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Just give me one thing that's bad about the good news. You can't do it. And I wonder sometimes, how can those who don't have it not want it? It's just good. And equally I wonder, how can we who have it not share it? Anna Marie loves to make cookies. She makes good ones. Snickerdoodles, chocolate chips. She hates chocolate. I know, weird, right? She hates chocolate, but she'll make chocolate chip cookies. And invariably, I'll tell you, every single time she'll make a plate of cookies, the whole house smells like cookies, I'll walk in and I'll start reaching for a cookie and she goes, I made those, you can't have any. (laughs) Now the first couple of times, that was a little disconcerting for me as a dad. You don't put a hot plate of cookies out on the counter and say, you can't have any. But she would say this and I started to realize pretty quick that she's joking around because she can't handle it. All I have to do is go, okay, and walk out. And she goes, okay, maybe one. <laughs> she can't help it. She's got to share the goods. She knows it's good. And if nobody took it, it would drive her nuts. How about us in the gospel? 
it should drive us nuts that we can't, that the people walk by. Hey, you gotta try the cookie. This is, a, this is an eternal cookie, man. This will blow your chocolate chip brain away. It, good cookie. Tell people. Again, I mean, I'm just reminding, I'm telling you what you already know. It's good news. And, and it's what the world needs. It's what they hunger and thirst after. And you realize that here the angel of the Lord first intercedes for the people and then translates the Word of God to Zechariah. Well, Jesus does that too. Jesus intercedes for us, and then when the Lord speaks, He speaks it back to us. He, he stands in the gap, and He communicates in both directions. No wonder He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. I'm, I'm the conduit. You have a problem, you have something you don't even know how to pray for, I'll intercede, I'll take care of that for you. And God has a word for you, and I will tell you what it is. He speaks to us in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2, through His Son. I, wow! So when the world says, well, I don't like the fact that there's only one way, I say, no, it's not that just that Jesus is the only way. He is the way. I mean, God made a way. There wasn't a way before Jesus. That's the thing. It's not that God's saying, well, I'm just going to give you one shot. No, He... We're standing here on Whidbey Island. It's like there's no bridge. How are we going to get off the island? And God says, here, I'll give you a bridge. Thank you. He's the, he's the only way. He is the way. I, this is simplistic, but it, it's profound to me. Because it's the thing that people will argue sometimes against Christianity. How come that has to be the only way? Why can't I go that way? How come? Why can't all of our ways go? Because there aren't other ways. There's no other Jesus. There is no other God, man. There is no other God who became flesh, who sacrificed Himself in love for all of humanity. No one else did that. Muhammad didn't do it. Muhammad sacrificed other people. And his people are still doing it. Joseph Smith didn't do it. He got shot in a bar fight. Or something like that. He was in jail for the bar fight. And the guy, I don't know. But anyway... He didn't do it. He didn't die for His people. <coughs> Name any great religious leader. No one died for that. Jesus is the only one who did what had to be done to make the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And even now, He's still, he's still walking that out. He's the way between us and the Father, and He's the way between the Father and us. Our words go to the Father through Him. The Father's words come to us through Him. How much more about Jesus can this book be? That's, I guess, what I'm wondering. So the good and comforting words come, and they are sevenfold. Sevenfold. Verse uh, 14, continuing on. Thus says the Lord of hosts. He says, proclaim. He wants Zechariah to tell this. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. That's the first word. But I am angry with the nations who are at ease. That's the second word. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, word number three, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. Fourth word, my house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. That's the fifth word. And by the way, that just means Jerusalem's going to be built again. 
We're going to get the builders out there and they're going to stretch their lines out there to measure it out and start putting the houses back up and the streets back in order. That's what that's about. The sixth word, my cities will again overflow with prosperity. And the seventh word is this, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. These are the good and comforting words that the Father spoke to the angel of the Lord. That the angel of the Lord told Zechariah, you tell him. You tell my people. You speak this. I just want to highlight two of these words and and we'll be finished for tonight. The second word. And the second word where he says, verse 15, But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. If God wasn't angry enough, we, we threw kindling on the fire. You know, the nations did that. I am angry with the nations at ease. The globe-trotting patrol had just come back with a report to their captain. What was the report? Back in verse 11, we patrolled the earth, and behold, the earth is peaceful and quiet. It's all good out there in the world. That doesn't mean the earth was at peace. In fact, most of Darius's career as a leader in Persia was fraught with wars and skirmishes and uprisings and rebellion and battles. Now, long about the second year of Darius, things were quiet, which fits the prophecy. But the world was not at peace. All the world was is what's said in the Hebrew where they say, again in verse 11, the earth is peaceful and quiet in the Hebrew. What they say is the earth is yashab and yashab. It's the same word twice. The, word, the earth is Yeshav and Yeshav. That's what the reconnoitering, reconnoitering group come back and say. It's a Hebrew phrase for the world's kicking back. Yeshav and Yeshav. They're chilling. The world's just, you know, hanging out. Peacefully inhabited. But it's not Shalom peace. It's Yeshav and Yeshav. It's a false, oppressive peace. There was some degree of peace because at least at this moment, Darius has a lid on stuff. He's got his armies and and he's holding down rebellion. And the people are just there. It's inhabited. It's a false peace. You can be out on the golf course and be stressed out. I know, I've seen some of your clubs. You can be sitting alone on a glassy lake in the high country with nothing but a fishing pole and birds singing and be absolutely striving. Lost. And revved up inside. And it's a lie in our world to think that all I need is a Heineken and a beach and I'm good. That's not true. You know it's not true. All I need is that two weeks of vacation and it'll all be okay. What happens when you come home? Because everything you left is still here. The whole idea of peace in the world is yashab and yashab. Just living my life, doing my thing. It is only the peace of the Lord that is true and lasting. Only the peace of the Lord. All other peace is temporary and deceptive. The Bible says, Isaiah 26.3, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Now there, it's shalom, shalom. Not Yashab, Yashab. Shalom, shalom. Peace upon peace. Who gets that? The one who trusts in the Lord. Again, Psalm, uh, Isaiah 26.3. Isaiah 57.19. Peace, peace 
Shalom, shalom. To him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians, saying he preached peace to those who are far and to those who are near. Peace to the Gentile and to the Jew. It's peace, peace for everyone if you come to the Lord. He says in Isaiah 57, verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You can fish all you want, but it ain't peace. You can kick back, drink to your little heart's content, get a good buzz, and it's not peace. The only peace is what comes... From the Lord, which is why again I say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What a peaceful evening. Jesus said, John sixteen thirty three, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. So peace is never found in kicking back, but in leaning in. The Lord looks at the nations who are at ease, quote unquote, Yashab, Yashab, hanging out. And he says, but I am angry with this world. This world that thinks that they're at peace, that thinks it's all fine, it's all good. God is angry. And His anger is increasing. And I would add to this just in my own estimation that what the world has been doing for the last 2,000 years has only been increasing the anger of God. Fill up, Jesus said, to the measure of the sins of the fathers. God's waiting until sin is just so big, so full, so exasperating, so angering, that at that point He'll finally say, enough is enough. The world is not at peace like it thinks it is. But for those who trust in the Lord, peace. Now look at the first word, verse 14. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. The rest of the list is summed up in that. I'm jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Therefore, I'm going to return to Jerusalem with compassion. I'm going to build my house, going to measure and and rebuild Jerusalem. My cities will overflow. And I'm going to comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Why? Because I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Don't think of God's jealousy like our petty jealousy. The Hebrew word is kana, and it is a passionate, fiery, overwhelming zeal. I, I read this. Let me ask you, are you exceedingly jealous for anything? I had to apply that to my life and thought about this for a minute. I thought, I, I'm jealous for my wife, and I'm jealous for my kids. In a protective, loving, zealous way, I want them taken care of. I want them to be okay. I have friends that I am jealous of, jealous for in a, in a good way, in a godly way. Am I exceedingly jealous? I don't know that I can say that. Don't tell Cheryl. (laughs) But no, seriously, what in your life are you just overwhelmingly, absolutely, incredibly jealous for? You're so passionate about it. It's like all you talk about all the time, 24-7. And for God, it's Jerusalem. And God has a lot of passion. For Jerusalem and for Zion, God's going to take the planet and turn it upside down in the tribulation. God is going to pour out wrath because people messed with the apple of His eye. Jerusalem and Zion. And my friends, the Lord is still 
exceedingly jealous for Zion. Three of you here, I think, heard this last night. I was so impressed with this. I've just been thinking about this. Started reading the book today, Les. We got a book at this conference. Ray Bentley is the pastor of Maranatha Chapel down in San Diego. He wrote a book I would highly recommend you get. I'm about halfway through it now. It's called The Holy Land Key. If you are interested in the overlay, a lot of you who will come up from time to time and say, when are you going to do the next prophecy update? And I'm like, well, we're kind of in it every week right now. <laughs> but soon, soon we'll do one. But you need to pick up this book, The Holy Land Key by Ray Bentley. And in it, he tells a story. And I'm, I'm just going to give you a, a thumbnail because I want you to understand this concept. The Lord wasn't just exceedingly jealous for Zion and for Jerusalem in Zechariah's day, 519-ish B.C. He is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem of 2014. Amen. Right now. Check this out. Okay, so Ray Bentley tells the story of a pastor from South Africa. The, whole, the story itself is, is a marvelous story about how this guy went through his own rebellion and all the stuff, but ultimately became a pastor. This African-American pastor moved to America, got out of some struggles in South Africa. His name is Robert Mawire. I don't even think I'm pronouncing it right. M-A-W-I-R-E. Robert Mawire or Mawir. Um, He's from Fort Worth. He was pastoring a little church, co-pastoring a little church in Fort Worth, about 100 people, and he had nothing to do. And someone in the church gave a prophecy to him about him. said, I have a prophecy. I have a word of the Lord. Word from the Lord for you. What is it? You're going to do something for the Jews. I mean, something big for the Jews. And, and this Robert Moire says, you know, little church, Fort Worth, what, what can I do? What am I going to do, you know, for the Jews? <laughs> Things began to roll on, he, he couldn't get this out of his head. He started at night. He'd be dreaming about this conversation he'd have with this guy. And he's a student of prophecy and loves the Word of God and was really in, and loved Israel. And so it made sense. He would love to do something for the Jews. And he's, he's dreaming about this now. And he's thinking about this. And suddenly the Lord tells him, you're going to go to Israel and you're going to speak to somebody there. And when you hear all this, you, need, you just need to trust me. You need to do that. Okay? So he hears this. So he, he's with a group of guys, and he's praying with some people, and, and he goes, there's a man who was there whose back was sore, and so he, he reaches over to put his hand on his shoulder and pray for him, and the man stops him and goes, wait a minute, I have a word from the Lord for you. He didn't know this guy. Well, what's that? You're going to go to Jerusalem, and... Um, you're going to talk to Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel. That would be like someone saying, Rick, you have an appointment with the Prime Minister of Israel. I mean, you'll pastor in a barn. Are you kidding me? And so he, he said, I couldn't believe it. I thought the guy was crazy. And he said, and the Lord is going to confirm this because you're going to, you're going to meet a guy at the uh, oh, what's at, it's it's a hotel in Dallas. You're going to meet a guy at the hotel in, at a hotel in Dallas, and he's going to put his hand on your shoulder and he's going to tell you what you're supposed to say to Benjamin Netanyahu. Okay, that's nuts. He goes to the hotel in Dallas. 
because his friends were there. They heard the name of the hotel and said, we got to book a room. <laughs> so off they go. <laughs> they get a room in Dallas. They go over there. They, they kind of have a Bible study and they do the stuff in the lobby. And then it, later in the evening, everybody's heading home. Nothing's happening. The guy walks up behind him. He feels a hand on his shoulder. And the guy says, you need to go to Israel and tell Benjamin Netanyahu that the day he negotiates land for peace, his government will collapse. You get to do that. <laughs> okay, so all this is happening, and again, we're all in the world of right. Okay, that's interesting. Maybe some interesting coincidences. If you're more spiritual, you think something's up here. But how's he now going to get to Israel? Things just start falling into place. That's the part I'm not going to tell you. Buy the book. Get the book, The Holy Land Key. It's amazing how one thing after another falls into place. This guy ends up, this little pastor, co-pastor of a small church in Fort Worth, meets um, the the mayor of Ariel, the largest Jewish uh, city on the West Bank. And talks to the mayor of Ariel, tells, shares with him his heart for Israel, his passion for Israel, what he sees God doing in the Hebrew Scriptures for the Jewish people and all the promises. And he says, and I have a message for Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, the mayor of Ariel knows Benjamin Netanyahu and says, I'll get you an audience. Like a week later, he says, you have an appointment to meet Benjamin Netanyahu uh, in two days. Get on a plane. He gets on a plane. He goes to Israel. He comes up to Benjamin Netanyahu. It's 1998. In 1998, this mayor from Ariel gets him in the same room with the Prime Minister of Israel. And he walks up to him and he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is a good start when you're talking to a Jewish man, (laughs) has sent me to tell you the day you negotiate land for peace, your government will collapse. Netanyahu looked at him. And said, and I quote, Have you not read in your Bible that we stone prophets in this country? (laughs) And he turns around and leaves. There you go. You delivered your message. In 1999, President Bill Clinton got Benjamin Netanyahu, and yes, sir, that's my baby Arafat. In the same, in the same room together, and negotiated land for peace. And within six months, Netanyahu's government collapsed, and he was out as prime minister. In 2001, Robert Mawire, this little pastor guy, got to have another meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu. This time, he walks up to him and he hands him a plaque. He was he was on a plane, and, and actually Robert. Uh, Ray Bentley, the author of this and the pastor I was sharing with you who spoke at our conference, Ray was with him. They're on the plane and they're flying to Israel and on the way to Israel, and Ray knows the whole story now, um, Robert leans over to him and says, I have another word from the Lord for Benjamin Netanyahu. And Ray's like, no, really? They go over there, it works out again. He's in the room with Netanyahu and this time he hands him a plaque that he had made that has Joshua 1.6 on it. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And then he says to Benjamin Netanyahu, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has a word for you. Be strong and courageous. God is not done with you. This is 2001, by the way. He says, you will be prime minister of Israel again. At a critical time in earth's history... Don't ever negotiate land for peace. 
Yeah. Uh, right on, huh? That's 2001. In 2009, Benjamin Netanyahu became Prime Minister of Israel again in a pretty stunning turnaround. If you know about that election, I won't bore you with it right now, but it, it, it shouldn't have happened. It should have been Zippy. Zippy Livni. It wasn't. God intervened. Netanyahu was restored for the second time now as Prime Minister of Israel, and he is to this day. And all I'm telling you that to say is this. God is exceedingly jealous for Zion. He loves Jerusalem. He loves His people. And whether you want to buy that story or not, I do. There are too many uh, verifying factors in the story and people who are involved with this and how it all went down and how it all came together. But I'm telling you, this sevenfold prophecy, not yet completely fulfilled, will bring about a comfort that Zion has never seen. It will bring about a consolation for Israel that has never been fully recognized, fully understood. This is a prophetic passage where the Lord says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do all of this, I'm angry with the nations. They are furthering their disaster. I am going, he says, I will return to Jerusalem. And he's not talking about the first time because the first time was not a return. The first time he was just coming. It's the second time he's going to return to Jerusalem. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to restore it and rebuild it. My temple's going to go up. And I'm going to bring comfort to Zion. And he says, I will again choose Jerusalem. Why is this the first vision? Why is this vision the key to all the others? Because it is Jesus who intercedes for Jerusalem and Zion. Because the words of this vision will find their complete fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19.10. That's another one to know. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'll tell you this much, after uh, after verse 17, verse 18 is actually verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible of chapter 2. So we did a whole chapter tonight, based on the Hebrew Bible. <coughs> Let me end with this, and I know we're actually over time. <laughs> wow. Um, how solid are God's choices? How certain... When God says, I choose Jerusalem, do you think He means it? If the Lord says to you, you are chosen by Me, do you believe Him? Good. Because the choices of God cannot be overturned. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Romans 11.29 And the the wonder, the joy for us here tonight is when we were singing, Give Me Jesus, He has. And that is rock solid. Yeah, but I've had such a bad week. I know many times I've had bad weeks. But the choice of God is rock solid. He's called us. He loves us. What about those He hasn't chosen? All they have to do is choose Him and they are chosen. And that's not doublespeak. It is biblical truth. Psalm 132.13, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. God chose Zion. 
Isaiah 14, verse 1. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, listen, then strangers will join them. And there's nobody stranger than us. Right here. Strangers will join them and attach themselves to him and to the house of Jacob. The promises of Israel are for Israel, but we get grafted in. We're included. We're the strangers. We're those who were not a people, but now we are a people in the Lord. Because He chose for it to be that way. Let me just read this to you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I've told you about this little dichotomy before, but if you've never heard this, you need to hear this. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And that is not a verse to underscore election or predestination because it is not a verse for the church. That is a verse for Israel. Paul, as a Jew, is saying he chose us, we Jews. He chose us from the foundations of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we, Jewish people, my people, Paul could say, would be holy and blameless before him. Now, a Christian can hear that and go, well, if that's for God, all the spiritual blessings are for God's people, what about us? Verse 13. Verse 13, Paul says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. It's you too. It's me too. He chose Israel from the beginning of the world for a special role. But in Jesus, He chooses us. So to be among the chosen in Jesus, you choose Jesus. Now we get that. How about the unbelieving world? How about our family and friends that are lost? We've got, we've got to keep this before us. We cannot be a church that shifts over to the new building and gets big because of transfer growth. That would break God's heart. I don't mind when people transfer to the bridge because they're hungry for the Word or, or, or there's, there's some fellowship or some connection or ministry here that, that the Lord is calling them to do. That's fine. It's absolutely fine. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not going to stand the, at the door and say, oh wait, you're First Baptist? Bye-bye! <laughs> Living Word? Uh-uh! You know? No. Come on in. God's inviting anyone to come. But it will break His heart if the future of this fellowship is a large transfer church. I would rather, I I said this at the, I don't think I said this Sunday, maybe I did say this Sunday, but I said this to our staff over the last couple of days, I'd rather be a small church full of of lost, messed up people finding Jesus than a big church filled with a bunch of church people. No offense intended, because I is one. We have a call. And when we read stuff like this, and we hear about God's love for, for Zion and for Jerusalem and His choice and His passion, and we know how quickly the end is coming before us, we don't have much time. Let's get people in the doors. Let's tell people about Jesus. He's Buddhist. I want him here. His foot got in the door. He watched a a fellowship of Christians laughing and joyful and having a good time. 
And I, I hope he got a good taste in his mouth. I want him to come back. Tim, talk to him. Tell him I said that in front of everybody. I want him to come back and bring me chocolate. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your choice of us in Christ Jesus. We thank You that You chose, Lord Jesus, to go to the cross. We thank You that You chose from the foundations of the, of the earth to be the Lamb slain. To die in our place. To pour out Your blood. We are so amazed that You would choose to ride the blood red horse. Because it does remind us, Lord Jesus, that You poured out every drop of Your own blood in Your first coming. And we know that You will return on that mighty white steed of victory and You will conquer the world that right now is just piling anger upon anger. With what time we have, Lord Jesus, I pray that for the Bridge Fellowship, You will tighten the tension a little more between our being called out in the rapture and our calling to evangelize a lost world. May we, Father, not only feel the joy of Your coming, may we at the same time, and I I want this, Lord, may we feel the sorrow of those who would be left. Just as You do, Lord Jesus. And as we grapple with both the joy and the sorrow, open our mouths to proclaim, proclaim, proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go and proclaim. Tell people what He's telling you.